I developed a strong disdain for the word the word proper. Run a mile if you hear the word proper, because it's a it's a control mechanism, and so I was a bit of a rebel. I was I began to question everything that was deemed to be proper, and sure enough, underneath there, there was life trying to come out, but had been a lid had been put on it. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh. As a child growing up in Scotland, Alistair Fraser was terribly shy. It was the violin that helped him find his way into the world. In part two of our Alistair Fraser podcast, I continue my conversation with Alistair that weaves in and out like a dancer responding to the lively notes of the fiddle. I was thinking about this last night watching you play. And the joy and the sense of camaraderie mm-hmm. in that room. And yet, it is the most ephemeral of things. I mean, yeah, there were video cameras running and there, there'll there be a recording, but still, it's just notes, just vibrations. And we sit around as a primate and we do these vibrations and they don't seem to necessarily, you know, make us wealthy or give us more food, you know, our, our, our physical needs. Uh, food, shelter, and clothing aren't necessarily met to it. Now, of course, when you get into this world where you make your living at it, that gets very interesting too. But there's something, especially in the folk music, where it's just something people have to do. It's like dreaming at night. You know, when they do this research where if you go to REM, uh, they'll wake you up. And after three nights of this, uh, every human being, as far as they know, becomes deeply psychotic. So they don't know why we dream, but we've got a dream. And that's, I, I think that's an interesting way to think about why we have to play music. I, think I, I love to, to test ideas to their roots, you know, to the, sort of the, the, uh, not the biological imperative, but the, the fundamental role of music. I mean, and, and I have decided that it's, music is not something that we add to our life. It's something that is actually innate to the human condition. And, and Following my fiddle has taken me to that point. I've witnessed so many amazing things. And one wee story I'm reminded of, which takes us actually to um, Nevada City. You remember the the Flower Garden Bakery? Oh, yeah. Down in Brunswick? The one in Brunswick. Okay. Years, like 15 years ago or something. Maybe I told you the story before, but I, um, I was in there getting my coffee, minding my own business. And this lady came in and she said, uh, you're Alistair, aren't you? And I, yeah. She said, have you got a minute? There's a little story I'd like to tell you about. And I said, yeah, sure. So we sat down and she said, you don't know me, but she said, we know you and we, we love your music. And I just want to tell you about my daughter and her daughter, whose name I've now forgotten, but was like 13 years old and she was um, had an extremely debilitating disease in fact she had just become like one of the longest survivors of of this disease and and the mother who I'm talking with as often happens had become a great fighter 
for her daughter's life, but also in the medical world uh, for information on this disease. She had, you know, opened doors. She'd asked people to te check again and do this and do that and and research. And so she'd become an expert in this uh, possible healing uh, uh, methods for this disease. And they'd been over a number of hurdles together. And the daughter had prevailed again, and she was back in her feet. And she, but she would get these setbacks, and she said, "My daughter just had a, another major setback." And this time, she said, "We we thought we were going to lose her um, uh, because they they needed to operate, but her blood pressure was so low uh, that we were told they couldn't operate." And maybe we should just accept that this, this was it. And she said, I went home. And then she said, I thought about how she loves music. In fact, track one on, on your Skydance LP, she says, she loves that track. Like she used to dance around the kitchen to it. And, uh, and so the mother said, so I had this idea. Like, if we can get her into the operating theater and we can put the headphones on and we can play this track that I know that she loves and, and animates her and always has, maybe her blood pressure will come up and they could do something. So she proposed that to the hospital and they said, well, no, we're not really set up to do that. And they kind of poo-pooed the idea and she said, we're going to do this. We're going to try this. And they set it up, and they, they did it, and they put the headphones on, and they played The Scalding Wives of Abertarf, I'll Break Your Head For You, and The Haggis, that opening medley. Her blood pressure went up, and they operated, and she got another go, go around. And she said, I just, I just wanted to tell you that. And I, I was in tears. I mean, I'm almost in tears now. Because I, and it's not about me, it's, it's about this force that we know exists between human beings and, and how music connects that, like that life force. And I, I left that flower garden bakery uh, a changed person because I, I now had a, like a really concrete data point, you know, speaking like a scientist. <laughs> I had this, wow, that's, that's good evidence, you know, of something that I know, I already knew to be true, like, but, but there it was. This brings up a subject I'm quite interested in, which is the role of the fiddler or violinist within the social context of their community. Now, somebody like yourself, who travels so much, has many communities, as mm -hmm. it turns out. And that's different than certainly back in the folk day where right. you were, you know, Jerry Milnes might say in West Virginia, there was that fiddler up that holler mm -hmm. and played for their dances, but played for the weddings, the fundamental transitional rituals of sure. any life. Sure. One of the things that most uh, drew me to uh, Scottish music when I first went to Scotland were laments, mm -hmm. and uh, but not just the melodies that can are 
or so poignant at times, and uh, but that there would be this relationship, and when somebody passed away, somebody would compose a lament. I think funerals are often at their deepest meaning about transferring a life from something that had been biological into a social memory that's just not memory. It's a still a living thing. It, it's like the person still lives in the community, mm-hmm. but they've gone through this transition. Mm-hmm. And I think that funerals and certain rituals, uh, particularly using boxes, coffins, mm-hmm. have to do with this moving the, the person into a different relationship to the community. And here you have music playing this role mm-hmm. by... Uh, that's well put, yeah. Yeah. And so any, uh, well, you've told a wonderful story about being a fiddler in Nevada County, mm-hmm. California. And I know there you're often asked to play benefits for different worthy organizations and so forth. And uh, anything you want to say about that, that experience of sort of coming in and out of a community where you really do live and you've raised your, your family, and then these far-flung communities, um, it, it must be a, an interesting psychological landscape <laughs> Oh, it's, you uh, travel through. Yeah. You become... Uh, that word custodian is back again. You're, you're actually holding, in many ways, the people. <laughs> you're holding situations, you're holding people, you're holding morale... You're holding, I mean, I have so many stories of, of or, um, moments where people have come up to me and told me the most amazing things that happened because of, of music that I was playing or that we were around. Or, and, and it, um, Do they also come up to you with things unrelated to maybe the music, but you become a counselor? Oh, for sure. You know, they're, they're marital issues or they're... Oh, yes. <laughs> There's a great story there because years ago I used to give... <laughs> I would take a Wednesday and I would teach private lessons because I decided I would, that would be one of the things I could do, you know. And, and teaching was is fascinating to me because everywhere, it's a one-on-one psychotherapy session. I mean, I wanted to know the person. I can't... We can't... You can't teach music and not know the person and so that was an emotional roller coaster every hour I had another person and it's like in the deep end and I'm always like that in everything I do it's like you're not going to get surface you're going to get we're going to go deep because that that's where the good stuff is you know and and, uh, I had this first student on on a Wednesday morning it's pretty funny she knew me well and, and she'd she would arrive at my door with two croissants and a cup of coffee each. And I would have the chairs set up. And we just got into this wee ritual where we'd, the first lesson would be a croissant and a cup of coffee, and then we'd gradually move into playing. And, and after a few weeks or months, or probably months, had gone by, I actually, as the teacher said, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm seeing a lot of change, you know, from week to week. I was trying to be delicate, but I could tell there wasn't much happening in terms of progress. Mm-hmm. The classic thing is, are you practicing? <laughs> yeah. 
and I'm not seeing much change, you know, from week to week, and and, and that just opened the flood. She says she broke down. She says, oh. she said, I, I can't play at home. My husband won't let me play in the house. He hates the sound of my my instrument and my playing, and and I. She said, "I'm so I'm so glad that I want to talk to you about it." And, and so that explained it, you know. And I said, "Well, that, that's all right. You play when you can, and I'm happy to, you know, keep going if you want to keep." She said, "I really, I love my lessons. I love my lessons." But so what happened was that increasingly the the croissant and coffee session got longer. <laughs> <laughs> And by the end, we never played. Like she would just come and sit there, and we and we do the croissant, like this little ritual thing with the croissant and the coffee, and, and her fiddle lesson had no fiddle in it. Like she just, she needed it to talk about what was going on at home, and I, and that was, which was you know, it was interesting for me to tie it all together somehow. And, there's an interesting concept that this one woman I talked to, uh, who's sort of an expert on religion and mythology, hmm. she basically said there's two kinds of religious practitioners. And she was this lecture she gave. And when I first heard it, I, when she framed it this way, I was like, I'm not that interested. That doesn't make sense to me. It sounded kind of superficial. Hmm. She said there's full-time religious practitioners and part-time hmm. religious practitioners. But as soon as she began to really explain what she meant, I really was interested. The full-time religious practitioner is someone who goes to an institution that trains mm. them, you know, divinity school and so forth, or uh, you know, yeshiva or wherever, you know, a rabbinical school, and then they function in that full-time religious relationship to the congregation. The part-time religious practitioner is more like this magician, wizard, shamanistic person who hasn't necessarily even decided they're going to be this kind of person. They just have one toe or more in this other dimension. Mm -hmm. And because they can do that, they're around certain situations, even like healing, of course, would be the shamanistic idea. You, you, tr you can travel into this other domain and heal the person in the spirit world. Mm -hmm. and, but these folks are always part-time. Mm -hmm. They often can't make a living at yeah. it, uh, and and shouldn't in a sense. But they're brought in, and I, I kind of think of the Catholic Church being this huge institution with uh, all kinds of things that go on in it. But way in like this small corner, they keep a few exorcists. <laughs> mm -hmm. They don't advertise this fact. Sure, that's the part time mm -hmm. folks that have this weird gift or ability, often and pay a price for it as it turns out, which I, I've been surprised. I read some memoirs of people who've been exorcists and often their health. Um, they pay a tremendous price. So I know we're moving into this area of sort of the uh, the mystical aspect. No, but I, it's, it's very important. And can I just say that like, when I started my fiddle school on Sky, I did not know what I would get into. But I, it was like I was driven by something else, you know, I... You know, you, we got to the point where I was talking about how I was inquiring. I was shy. I was unsure about what it, what my what it was to be Scottish. What? How do I represent my my culture? Why are we embarrassed about our own? Why have I, Why was I told to not speak in my own accent? 
Why was my father told, my grandfather told to not teach his son Gaelic? What is going on with this, these controlling mechanisms that are so full of rules? Play your violin properly. Bow these tunes properly. Get the honeymoon, honeymoon tutor. It tells you how to play Strathspeys properly. I developed a strong disdain for the word, the word proper. Run a mile if you hear the word proper. Because it's a, it's a control mechanism. And so I was a bit of a rebel. I, was, I began to question everything that was deemed to be proper. And sure enough, underneath there, there was life trying to come out, but had been a lid had been put on it. So, you know, I was confronting low self-esteem in, in Scotland. People scared to speak, tongue-tied kids who would not speak in the class because their accent was wrong. They just didn't want to hear it anymore. You don't speak properly. And the classic Scottish story of the school teacher saying to the kid, Dinny say Dinny. So we were all, I wasn't the only one that had, had this shy problem, it was introverted problem. We were, we were scared to speak. Um, all of that was, was kind of boiling up in me. And I, when I went to the first year of my course on Sky, I just, I laid all this out. I brought in, uh, I confronted the British Empire. There you go. <laughs> I confronted uh, on, Presbyterianism, right? there you go. fear, fear mechanisms. I talked about the grey Presbyterian blanket that sits over the country that that dampens our spirit and our willingness to to speak up. Uh, I had a minister's son from Lewis on the course who was in tears, who, who just couldn't believe that I was actually saying these things. I... Uh, I asked questions like, and these are not from a judgmental point of view. This was my own journey. I was exposing my own journey. For example, in the Catholic areas in Scotland, in the, in in Uist and Barra and Loch Haber, people have a longer folk memory. They remember older tunes. They even remember some old dances that uh, the Presbyterian areas have long since forgotten. So the lot longer folk memory where the Reformation didn't hit. And I sat and said, why, why is that? What's going on here? And I had people walk out. Like, Can we just play tunes? I said, no, I want to know. I want to know why we're all so scared. And why we have certain you know, individuals who, who say this is the right way when in a healthy tradition there are many ways there are many ways to find bowing solutions and many ways to play a Strathspey and to make up variations and be alive in your tune and uh, so we, we wrenched it open people that walked out came back in they came back and man we have not stopped asking questions since we're gradually getting there. Self-esteem is, is rising. We're, people used to be scared to make up tunes in case they were told. Like, classic um, comment I got was, why do you want to make up a tune that uh, the one's already written, not good enough for you? 
<laughs> no, I just want to make up a tune. That's part of the tradition, to make up tunes, you know. And we had, it's a, such an uphill battle to, to get through that. I think that uh, you know, transferring these ideas to the say, broader subject of, let's say, mysticism uh, within the Christian tradition, mm. um, the canon stopped 2,000 years ago. I mean, these are the texts. Everything you ever needed to know has already been, you know, revealed. So you have 2,000 years where the only place you can reveal new truths about our human condition is maybe in the novel or in, or in the arts. Hmm. But the religious um, accepted text for how things are is if God finished his business and walked away 2,000 years ago. And what's your problem? And <laughs> why would you do that? You know, why? Uh, yeah, I... I I really understand that hmm. and respect your work enormously because you've, you've played that role. Well, it, it was still that. It's still my, my, it's my own effort to try and open myself up, you know, and to answer questions of what it is to be, to exist as a human being. And, uh, and to share that journey is, is amazing. So last question, and I know I'm kind of moving around this subject. Have you had any experiences of, I mean, sometimes I'll, I'll say, you know, if I'm playing a Melvin Wine tune or certain tunes from people that I knew who were older mm -hmm. men at the time, when I play their tunes, occasionally if everything's right, the stars are aligned, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, you've been playing all night at a festival, I have these experiences where I'll feel the soul of that man is right there with me. It's almost playing through me, I, mm. or has been invited, as it were, to the uh, to the jam. Now, the Chinese, I, I talked to a Chinese uh, violin maker just recently, and I was asking him that because there you really have a language, especially within Confucianism, where um, there is this idea that there is an ability to ask the ancestors in, in very real terms uh, to be present in the moment that mm. this music is being celebrated, and it amplifies it enormously in, in some fundamental way mm -hmm. that you sense and it would be very difficult to put into words. Is that a fair portrayal of kind of what you feel sometimes? Or yeah. have you had a specific... Uh, well, I actually deliberately... Ghostly visitation. <laughs> I actually... I, it's what, one of the techniques I have found that I, I can use as a... As a pedagogue, you know, as as someone who's interested in transferring ideas, teaching, you can go to the books, you can copy, but there's a, there's another thing you can do, which is uh, you can channel your heroes. You, you can, like, say I'm playing a gnarly old Strathspey. I could play it in a very violinistic way. I can, I can, physiologically, I my arms can go there. But I can also choose to live in a different time. And I can, in order to go there, I I love stuff like this. Is like you throw, you can throw an idea up to the top of your head where um, creativity lives, or or where some there's a place up there where solutions get tossed around and you you don't even know what, what they are. 
So I, say I'm going to play this gnarly old stress bait. I can think of Neil Gow, my m image of him playing somewhere in his cottage or in a dance or whatever. And I channel my own image of, of what I think he would have played like. And the physiology of it and the, the feel of his fiddle and the, the, uh, the Baroque fiddle, the shorter neck, the, the Baroque bow. And I let it take over my body. I get out of the way. And the only criteria I have is, is the sound and maybe the danceability or something. And I can actually watch my body finding solutions. Like my bow, I'll do something with my bow or my wrist or, or this. And, and I go, wow, I would never have thought of that. You know, but but my I'm sort of letting myself become a conduit somehow for a, an empty vessel that is being filled from somewhere that I don't really know. But I'm I'm open to it. Let's see what might come in. So I use that, and and I even just I always think about Angus Grant, left-handed fiddler from Loch Harbour. You know? who I know quite well and I've known since I was, since the beginning. I used to go and watch Angus play when I was 10. I can channel him, I, I can, I just put my mental image of Angus's playing into my head and watch my muscles. I'll play a pipe march or something and it will be of Angus, you know, it, and it's not like I know what I'm doing. I don't know the details. Same as when uh, you know when I talk about fiddle speak. If I want to play my my fiddle in a a northeast style, a Doric style, I can channel someone from there, and it'll get me in there. And then once I got that, once I've morphed there, then I own it again. And when I'm describing this, sometimes I, I talk about if if someone asks me to to speak in a in a Liverpool accent, because I'm fascinated by accents and dialects, same as on a fiddle, I can immediately go. I come from Liverpool. Now I I don't know what it is I'm doing in my mind. I, you know, I'm using my jaw in a different way. I'm you thrusting you my tongue. You haven't broken it down, right? You haven't broken it down into... No, I don't know the mechanism. And right. teaching often is about, like, well, let's break that down and let's see how... It... Actually, you don't always have to do that. There's another, there's a superior way to get the gestalt of it. And palate is fascinating, though. You, you know, some speaking a Texas accent, you, you can think of someone who does that and then just... Give your body permission. Next thing you know, you're doing it, but you don't know how you're doing it. And I, I love that area. We could use that more, I think, in teaching. And I think in the situation we find ourselves right now in the world, and I'm going to jump this to the big scale, <laughs> uh, because we are faced with problems that our rational minds um, on very good evidence, would tell us we may not survive. Mm -hmm. Global warming being the largest of all of them, but nuclear 
weapon proliferation and one thing and another. And I find people becoming deeply discouraged and, and finding themselves falling into to despair because the universe in which they exist only allows for cause and effect, mm -hmm. rational understanding of what could happen. So they can't imagine a solution in that one realm of mind. They begin to uh, get crushed by it. Mm -hmm. And this thing we do about music, as simple as it may seem to somebody looking, well, not simple, but you know, somebody looks at what are you doing, playing these ephemeral notes. But we're always working on this idea of, um, I think, simply moving into a different understanding of time itself. And this goes oh, yeah. back to your sense of being physics and quantum mechanics fascinates me that, you know, our idea of linear time is just a construction. And there are other ways of being here with time. And that, again, is those ideas these older players are still playing in some construction of um, time, if you understand time and and light, the speed of light and space, everything that happened is still happening in some way. I've had, <laughs> I've had people describe this to me, and I, I just have a gut feeling that this is how it is. And the idea that you can call upon a power, and we don't have to call it God or whatever, but that you can just get this help, a little bit of help along the way, mm -hmm. you know, like the Beatles, you know. That, get along with a little help from my friends, that there are other forces available to us. And I, I, and I know I'm going on, but I, I mean, in, in the Celtic folklore of these other um, spirit beings and so forth, that who knows who interacts with us in what ways and can give us a, lend a hand. Yeah. Well, that, and my, back to my own. See, the fiddle has led me on such an amazing path of inquiry. Because uh, there I am, coming from a very, is it right brains? Engineering background, Scots are very, you know, we like our engineers and we, and I love that too. I, I love, I, I studied if-then-else thinking, logos, to a high degree. I, I love ra that rational thought and, and the logic of it and the, the path that it takes you down. The rational thought, and when I was, uh, you know, I got my degree in physics, and then I go to work for British Petroleum, and I'm actually using my degree to solve problems in the oil field of all places, and uh, I'm working with neutron decay tools and all kinds of stuff, and and solving things, and I'm out there playing my fiddle and playing for dances and playing, and man, did this cause this yin-yang thing to come up again, this left brain, right brain, which, where do I, classical music, paper, fiddle, oral traditions, wow, where, where do I sit in all this? And I, what I ended up doing, uh, well, people, when you have to make a hard decision, the wisdom, the, the advice you get from society often is, well, you sit down, Alison, and you make a list of pros and cons, yeah, the old scales. And you know what? It doesn't work. No, it doesn't. You make the blooming lists. I have, I still have some of these lists I made when I was sitting logically trying to decide if I should go and pursue a life in art and play music or stay with, you know, my oil company and my physics, and all, which I loved. And, and I'd make these lists and I'd be none the wiser. 
and I go on long walks trying to figure out how how do you make this decision. And somewhere around that time is when I came across Joseph Campbell. And man, that just was huge. It was, I mean, I was ready for it. And mythos and logos. Suddenly I didn't feel so alien. I, I, I had a place to go. And, and I decided that uh, mythos is where I needed to go and live because I can always use the rational thought and then contain that inside the larger myth of what it is to be alive. And But I remember that decision-making thing was fascinating because I remember think, reading Campbell and he's talking about when you're on one side of a wall and you're, you're looking at, over the wall to the other side and you're trying to decide do you want to go and live there? You can't make a decision based on what you see on the other side of the wall because by crossing the wall, you change the outcome. And it made perfect sense to me. And and tell me the moment this really happened. Where were you when you... I mean, you're reading them, you're thinking these things. Do you know oh, man, I, the moment you said, yeah? It is the moment because I had... I had long, lonely walks in parks and testing this idea. Well, like, do I want mythos or logic, rational thought versus art, which is not based on rational thought. And and here's the... I was I used to work late in, in the office. This was in, in the financial district in San Francisco. And I loved my, my job, actually. And uh, we used to do these plotting. Uh, we had a mechanical plotter that would do underground contour maps. And this thing would, would go... And I'd be sitting there writing tunes, you know, to to the sound of the plotter for fun because it would come up with some r- neat rhythmic snippets, you know, and it was fun. So I'm in, in this entire floor on my own, working late because I was happy to do that and then I started thinking the old problem again am I is this what I do <laughs> I need to be out there playing my fiddle I want to go play music I want to play. and I remember I sat back in my chair I put my feet on the desk and I I had this thought which was there's no one on this planet that can't be affected by music uh, Really? And I thought about that, that every living soul can be affected by music. And I sat upright in my chair, that's it. Music is, is a huge force in life. It's not an add-on, it's not a, something I stick on after my job. It's fundamental to life itself. And I quit the next day. But I got my answer. That was it. I'm so thankful I got that. Because I needed to, I'm not, you know, I think that way. I need to 
fundamentally know why I'm doing something, you know? Yeah, you need a story, the real story. Mm -hmm. And being, to me, is being in a story. Here is part of the medley of tunes on the first track of the Skydance CD that was played in a hospital operating room as a young girl struggled for her life. So uh, we had talked earlier about uh, your ideas about the jester, and maybe you could uh, expand on that. Well, just from witnessing uh, what happens when humor comes into a situation. Uh, um, The idea of opening, uh, let's see, removing barriers, removing preconceived notions about right and wrong, Humor, when, when the story comes in and, and humor is used as a, a vehicle, um, truths become available to, um, to an amazing degree. Uh, and I, I realize in my own journey again that when, when humor is, is used as a carrier wave, Taboo subjects become not taboo anymore, and they they become available. And you think about old societies where the the people who sat at the king's on the king's court um, would be, and mu- music would be up there. The musician would be a very important person to be in the inner circle. Uh, the scribe someone who noted what's going on and was able to support uh, facts and what happened. And 
and the jester. The clown, the jester, in so many ways, is the most powerful person in the room. That they can get away with murder. They can say anything. And they can couch wild, um, rebellious ideas in humour and have them be digested by, by the company in a non-confrontational way. What an amazing tool, and it's you know something I try to take upon myself to to learn to be better at that. To instead of hitting things head on confrontationally, if I could just learn to go sideways a little bit and and douse a, some humor, uh, pour some humor onto the, the subject, then I could, I could get further. And I see people who are good at that, and um, and even just. Topically now in in this country, the United States, um, where there's, there isn't a lot of satire in, in the media, um, but you go to the late night comedy shows for some of the, the best source for news for for what's happening. Like I love Colbert, and I, I love the way he gets he gets to say things. I remember Stephen Colbert at the, at the press conference dinner a few years ago when he he called. Oh, yeah, he roasted Bush. Bush, and that was the, mo the most courageous, incredible power of a jester at work because who would have thought anyone could get away with what he got away with that night and, and what he said and what he did. But there it was, protected by humor and 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 people thought some people really thought he wouldn't survive that that he'd stepped over the line. Um, what makes me think about what you're saying? You were saying earlier that you don't tell jokes, mm -hmm. right? But yet we're talking about humor, mm -hmm. and I really like this idea. You were talking about the orthodoxy, the the word proper within the musical uh, world of Scottish music. There has always been to me in the traditional music, this sort of carrier wave of humor in the tunes. You know, maybe not laments, but this idea that there's just a, a sensibility of of a kind of a sense of, of humor, of that we like what's funny. And a lot of the old people I knew and met, they were like that. I, I see sometimes in young players today, uh, they don't quite understand that you know, they, they take it too seriously. I mean, mm -hmm. it's great to take the music seriously, but on another level, there's a kind of a humorous quality to it that I wish young people had a better sense of. And when I see you perform, I think I see this a lot. It's not just about playing the tune. It's about surprising people. That's that humor. It's about surprise. Got to have that. It's it has to be alive. Yeah. And and, it, and we has a wee cheeky wink in it <laughs> that's it <laughs> you know somewhere that aliveness yeah. that's gonna it, it just is of life you know it's um it's running water you know it, it's moving and, and it, i think the old word for a tune actually was a humor you see old collections oh, yes. where they'll talk about uh, a collection of humors and, and yeah um 
And you, you know, you get this. It's just a way of being alive, and even in a lament, actually, because I, I, I record it. I love going to this place. When I, for example, Neil Gow's lamentation on the death of his second wife, you know, a famous lament in the Scottish repertoire. And one would assume maybe at first it's a lament. So it's it's a sad occasion, it's a death. But when I play that tune, I actually do, I'm going back to the old morphing thing again, but I, I try to think of this, who, who we're lamenting here. And when we lament, you're also celebrating a life. You're, you're holding up, you're, you're, you can point to the idiosyncrasies of that person, the, the wee things that she did that you loved and they were crazy and that, you know, that someone would talk about at, at the funeral maybe or someone would say, you know, to tell a funny story about that, how she had this quirk or and this beautiful thing and we all loved it because it was a part of her and that was her, what made it. And the same when you're playing The Lament, you... <laughs> Story. <laughs> <laughs> Here's Scott's little joke. Yeah. That was wonderful. Yes, yeah, so as you showed me as you were drawing the bow. <laughs> yeah. But I, I loved it. When a lament can actually be... It could be anything from frivolous to, to, to humorous to... to <laughs> Yeah. Well, it, it's uh, it's that New Orleans tradition. Yeah, they carry the c- casket, you know, to the cemetery and they play the dirge, and coming back mm-hmm. they play the celebration mm-hmm. that life goes on and uh, the circle of life stuff. And it's true. And and uh, I, I'm very appreciative. I come from a Celtic family, an Irish family, that appreciated how important to tell the funny story at the wake and how important to have a wake. Mm. In a day, it's, we're becoming so sterile about this. You know, they come in, they take the body, and get a little memorial. I don't know why people become so serious. Do you know what? When it's killing the soul. The day after nine eleven, or two days, I can't remember why this happened. But I was on. Kevin Burke phoned me, and he says, "Alistair, you got any nine eleven jokes?" And I, I said, "No, I don't have any." He says, I'm trying to get 9-11 jokes. I'm, I'm calling home to Ireland and all. And a, have you heard this? And have you heard that? And it really surprised me then, but it shouldn't have surprised me because the Irish are, are great examples of a, of a culture that uses humour to, to heal and to, to maintain and to uphold, you know, Morale. The Scot- we do that in Scotland too, but um, they're they're way better. That they're, they're. I mean, I laugh so much when I'm with Irish, but I, my face hurts from <laughs> laughing. Yeah. And it's. Um, my mother on very much celebrated. She had one. Her mother was English. Her father was very Irish, a Quinn, and and I think she identified very much with the Irish side of her nature. She would have on her refrigerator um, one thing, you know, Irish need not apply, the, the sign that was commonplace back in the day in immigration. But she had another thing, and it's on my refrigerator now, said, um, what a Christian needs in the world is a good sense of humor and a spirit of faith in that order. Mm-hmm. Humor to her was the core mm-hmm. expression of faith. Yeah. And I love that. And I think that's, we should look into that, but... Humor meets music. You're absolutely right on that. Uh, 
the dancer, you know, listen to Yasha Heifetz play, and he's got this stern facade, and um, he he seemed to lead a stern life actually. But when he when he's playing, you can hear the dancer. You, it's all connected. The dancer and the the quixotic nature of music itself and, and humour, the mm. storyteller mm. with a wink. Yeah, or the, it's got to be in the, there. The giggle of fairies just out of sight. You know, mm. so many stories in Ireland, nice. and, you know, stumbling nice. upon the, the fairy ring. And, uh, you know, that we're, yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. And to be, to have humour, you got to have some, you got to be on your game. Like, you got to have some headroom. <laughs> to allow the humor to dance in there and so I mean so many uh, things that fascinate me are situations where there is headroom like work, working with uh, James Horner movie composer incredible guy he was one of the last guys to uh, he conceived the entire score people loved to play his scores in Hollywood because they, they were meaty and gnarly and great parts everybody had great parts and he insisted on conducting live to screen to the streamers so he's got a full symphony orchestra brass with a score that's just been printed off that morning that he dumped out of his head the parts are distributed they're sight reading it these wizard great players he's conducting the orchestra to the movie timing it so that when the car hits the wall, the trumpet hits his note, you know, and all of this, it's just, wow, what a great accomplishment for a human being to have all the, this dancing, but he's got headroom beyond that. He, what looks incredible to me, to him, is just, and at one point he's, he kind of starts, a cup of tea, I mean, like a cup of tea, you know, and, but, and that, I just love being around, and at one point he, this massively complex score was going on, he's conducted to the movie, the execs are in the office and they're, it's all over budget and they're, he needs time, 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 you know. And suddenly he stops everything and he says, second bassoon, your, your B flat was slightly sharp. <laughs> These people knock it's me like, out. How do they do that? He had headroom. He, yeah. He was not, he was dancing. He was still dancing, yeah. you know. And when you talk about people getting taking it too seriously, I think it's sometimes that we we're not we don't have the headroom to we haven't built right. that in. Right, we have to put we have to be able to turn that knob at least to eleven, right? Yeah, on the old Marshall amp. Um, here's a story you may we may not want to tell us or not, or, or uh, I just suddenly popped into my head. Last of the Mohegans. Oh God. Yeah, do you want to tell that? You know, just how that all worked and the theme that's become what it is. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's like what's what's the best part of that story is the creativity that was in, involved. So just and start it from the beginning. Just the explain how it came to you. Well, yeah. it's a funny story too. I mean, we got Michael Mann, who's the director of. The Last of the Mohicans. Michael Mann is a, a brilliant director, and he's also known as a, a bit of a tyrant on, on set. He hires and fires easily. 
Um, but he's very successful. And, and uh, Trevor Jones has been hired to do the music. Trevor Jones is a very fine composer and a veteran in the movie business. And um, So Michael Mann has a reputation for getting things done his, his way and, and uh, the movie's proceeding apace. The, the music is always the last thing in these movies, so there's always time pressure and budget pressure, which is kind of bizarre because the music is often what makes, is a large part of what makes a film successful or not, and it's always added on at the end, you know. And so this was that a case like that. People were working hard. It's, uh, tempers are frayed. Parallel to all of this, Michael Mann's wife goes to Scotland on a holiday and she goes to Loch Ness and she wants to see the monster. <laughs> and if you really want to see the Loch Ness monster, one of the easiest ways is to go to the Loch Ness monster exhibit centre where <laughs> you can see the photographs on the walls that people have taken of the monster and... and Pay your five pounds to yeah, and go in. <laughs> buy a souvenir t-shirt and a dish towel, you know. And But she went to the video presentation in the Loch Ness Monster gift area and she watched a little video there about the history of the Loch Ness Monster and she liked the music, on that, which was by Dougie McLean. Dougie is great, fantastically talented, wonderful... Singer, songwriter, fiddle player. He's a very creative guy. He's wonderful. Um, so she bought a cassette tape on the way out of the Loch Ness Monster, of, of the soundtrack of that little Loch Ness Monster video. She gets home to L.A. and she hands it to, to her husband, tyrant Michael Mann, who's working on this movie. She says, you got to use there's music in there. you got to use that in the Mohicans. He says... Well, I already have music, you know, I've got Trevor Jones made. But she had some sway. So Trevor Jones gets a message from Michael Mann, can he please incorporate this jig that Doogie wrote into the movie? No one is happy about this. Trevor Jones thinks, well, does he think I can't write music? You know, why do I have to use this music? Like when, and Michael Mann, well, you know. So now they have a jig to deal with. And this is great because um, they get the first call violinist in, in L.A. and ask him to play a jig. They can't. You can read this jig. It's not complex on the page, but it, they can't play a jig. They haven't done that homework. So it just sounds terrible. A violinist playing a jig, you know, it just doesn't work. So I get a call. Um, can you jump on a plane and come down here and play this jig? And he sent me, you know, a recording of the tune. It's easy enough. So I, I go down there and it's me and Trevor Jones. It's midnight. I said tempers were afraid. Everyone had fallen out. So many people got fired. This movie was over budget, over time. No one expected it to, to go anywhere. So Last of Civility, was that the title of the film? <laughs> oh no, the last of the Mohegans. Yeah, yeah. So uh, 
it's me in the studio in LA with Trevor Jones and an overworked engineer. Cher was next door, I remember that. It's about midnight and they put up the movie and asked me to to play the jig. And it happens to be at the climactic sequence when Hawkeye and the, there's a chase and Coro commits suicide, she jumps off the cliff. And it, I mean, it's a hugely dramatic thing. And I, I play for like 10 minutes. I play this jig for 10 minutes watching this. And it was quite emotional. I, I was in, I was totally in my element, loving it. And then they surprised me because, because of Dolby surround sound. After I played this jig and I varied it, you know, for 10 minutes, as one does with ornaments and whatnot. He said, well, can you double track that with what you just did again? Like, you know, parallel track what you just did. Which I, I did. So I, did, I parallel tracked it. And he said, that's great. Wow. So glad we called you and said, love your work and uh, try and get you credit on the movie. But And then Trevor said, you know, there's another scene. I wonder if you wouldn't mind just playing on this other scene. And he puts up the kiss scene, the, the very romantic kiss scene with Cora and her. He's in the control room. I'm in the studio like this. And he says, well, play something, you know. And I, I'm in my element, so I... I make up this thing, and he he stops me and he says, "Oh, um, actually, I have I have something you could use here." And he sang me a song. Oh, he sang me a, a melodic snippet. He says, "Can you use this?" And I said, "Well, I I could play that bit." I said, "Um, I recognize that as an Edith Piaf song. What you just sang." And he said, "Oh my gosh, Elsa, you you're perfectly right. Continue with what you were doing." So my inner romantic is there, you know, and I'm playing this this piece, and that was it. Then it was very late at night then, and unusually, he said, "That's love your work. Will you get credit on this movie? It's been so great working with it." Instead of and going to a hotel, and you were compu- you were composing this melody. I just made it in up. real time. Just made it up. Yeah, and he says, "Why don't you just come home, come with me, and we'll have some steak and eggs and." hang out so I did I had a dram stayed at his house woke up the next morning played with his kids and met the family and went home quite happy thinking I got a session fee and it seemed like he meant I would get credit on this movie which is that's a good thing I thought no more about it till I went to see the movie in Berkeley on my own just went in and right at the beginning I hear this melody And I, I took a mental note that I like that melody. And unusually, I I, I noted that I, I seemed to have a sense of where it was going. I, I was kind of complimenting myself on how <laughs> this melody was put together sort of thing, you know. And then it got to the kiss scene. And I hear me my own violin playing the melody, the theme that I've been listening to in the, the movie up to that point. Uh, 
how can I be playing the scene? Because I didn't know that scene. I didn't. Wow. The scene became the thing I played. And I left that theater thinking, what, what happened there? And I did all kinds of analysis thing. Did I remember this wrong? Did I remember? Anyway, so I sat on it for a couple of days, but I couldn't make sense of it. How could I be playing the theme when I didn't know the theme? Curious. I decided I would call, and I got, I traced Trevor Jones. He was now then in London, and I said, Hey, Trevor. Yeah, I was doing great. I said, well, it's about the movie. I'm just curious. Curious. Genuinely curious as to what, how I played the theme when we didn't know what the theme was at the time. And he said, oh, you're kidding. And I was relieved. Because I, I liked this guy. You know? And he said, you're playing the theme? I said, yeah. He said, I haven't seen the movie. I didn't he said, we all fell out. We, we just, I left, uh, Michael Mann put together a bunch of composers and they went through a bunch of tapes and they stuck a soundtrack together and then, and I thought, great. This guy has, hasn't just, you know, made use of my skill and, or my creativity. And, and I said, well, looks like I came up with the, the theme or I have some, saying that, you know. And he said, oh, it's very interesting. And I, so then I took it to 20th Century Fox and I said, I, I want to claim something, I don't know what. Two days later, I got a call from Trevor Jones, who's now moved, he's flown to LA, he's been talking and he's, he's uh, calls me up and said, Alistair, I hear you're in touch with 20th Century Fox. He said, I was a composer on that film. I said, yeah, yeah, I realize that, but you know, as we said, that, um, things didn't go as planned. And, and he said, well, actually, I, I, I did sing the theme to you when you were in the control room, I and mean, when I was in the control room. I said, well, actually, no, you sang me an Edith Piaf song, and we didn't use it. And then he said. You know, if you if you pursue this, it will be your word against mine in court. And it, I mean, ultimately, I just dropped in. I decided philosophically, karma was on my side here, and I, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to pursue it anymore. It, um, it became a good story. And I, I don't really, you know, fault him. I think he was kind of messed around, and it was it was just ugly. It often gets ugly when there's money like that at stake. And I remember one writer said that they had written a story, a short story or a novel, possibly, and Hollywood showed some interest, and he said, I suddenly realized it would be like selling my kid to the circus, <laughs> hmm. is how he put it. That there's just a whole other set of dynamic... Uh, forces at play. Not always, I you know. Obviously, there, there are probably some good good things that happen, but that that's. Oh, the best line though ah, in that phone call was, he said, you know that there, there um, 
how about this? Uh, they're they're talking about maybe a sequel. We'll 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 get you involved in the sequel. And I go, how can we have Last of the Mohicans two? You know, like <laughs> <laughs> like second Last of the Mohicans. You know, like I can hear it. I can hear the lawyer offer him another possibility. Yeah, the Last of the Mohicans two. But anyway, that, <laughs> and I would never detract from Diggy McLean's work, and it was just a stunning the jig he wrote, and the the chord progression that he used it was very very uh, seductive. It was great. I would never take away from Diggy and his his jig, and I've never tried to do that. And did he get credit in the movie for it? Yeah. Oh, good. And did he, they pay him something? Oh, well, I'm sure they did. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure they did. So anyway, that was. What did I learn? I don't know. You, it, it's actually kind of interesting because the wisdom is, okay, you're a professional. You don't go in the studio and just play without knowing what the deal is. But that's not the way I'm built. You know, it, pathetic as though that sounds. I, if I'm in a creative zone, art and creativity is going to just win the day, you know. I'm not going to sit there say, I'm not going to play another note until I know what, if I'm getting credit on this movie or I won't get my fees. When you're in the throes of creativity, all of that stuff is, I'm not good at that. It's just like... Well, you mentioned earlier this idea of logos and mythos. In some ways, I see commodity exchange and mm-hmm. gifting mm-hmm. as these two fundamental human activities. And... Um, Oh, a fellow named Lewis Hyde wrote a wonderful book about that, exploring that, how there's times when commodity exchange is exactly what's called for, and then other mm-hmm. times, gifting. I mean, I think the old Woody Allen joke was he would hold up this uh, pocket watch and he'd say, I got this pocket watch from my grandfather. He sold it to me on his deathbed. Mm-hmm. You know, And that's the humor of the unexpected flip. Mm-hmm. This idea that some things we talked about getting that violin. And I love mm-hmm. that. You're arguing them up in price and they're arguing down in price mm-hmm. because there's a sense, no, this is gifting. This is not commodity exchange. They're very different. Mm-hmm. The potlatch out in uh, the Pacific Northwest is fascinating because uh, when you would take these copper plates that had a great you know, use as plates and the same thing were made for copper and they're valuable. And if you broke that plate into two or three parts and gave the segments to someone, people in that community would always consider that broken part much more valuable than the whole plate because mm. it had been gifted through the potlatch. That's great. So a very different idea of what uh, what a sign value is um, and what the creative world gives to you and, and for you not to go into the trenches to fight this out because the source, you would never want to jeopardize the source. Of the, of the gift that comes to you as a creative artist. Right. And also just the knowledge that there is no limit to the well that I drink from. Yeah. It's an infinitely deep well. I, you know, that, I mean. Yeah. In the I Ching, there's a hexagram of the well. And I think it's the top line in that. It says, you know, the well is there for anyone. They all can draw from it what they need. And there are certain individuals, the more that's drawn from them, the more the well fills. Mm-hmm. It's an infinite well. That's mm-hmm. that's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, what, what a rich thing to, to be in touch with. 
is truly awesome in, in the yeah in the original meaning of that word you know yeah thank you it's been a great interview i've really enjoyed the time no it's fun talking to you thank you Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. Oh,